Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Thank you for being here on Super Bowl Sunday. Somebody's got their priorities straight, huh? Good. Well, Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi, uh, they aren't here today. They're out of town, and they are doing such a wonderful job uh, just leading our campus. And also, Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi just leading, uh, helping Pastor Jacob and Miss Michelle leading OSC uh, with the five campuses as well. Uh, we're just so grateful for them, uh, grateful for their leadership, their encouragement. And, and I can tell you again personally that Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi mean so much to me and Courtney. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit, too, and just go on with uh, OSC missions. Uh, our missions team, global missions team of OSC, they are going out to Guatemala on this coming Saturday. So can you join me this weekend? I would love for some praying folk. Let's pray for our missions team as they go to Guatemala, and they're going to be just talking about Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to go and tell, right? We're a go-and-tell church, so globally, we're going to make connections over there. I can tell you, if you haven't been on a missions team, please sign up for that. I know you can go to OSC Missions, go online, and you can look at all that. Um, Hannah Reisner, she's the director of OSC Missions, and she would love to have you participate in one of those missions teams. Uh, today is part two, relationships, keeping it real with each other. Are y'all ready to keep it real today? Huh? Come on, come on, 1030. Are you ready to keep it real today? Hey, relationships are important. Wouldn't you agree? Marriage relationships, relationships with our kids, relationships with our parents, with our friends, with our loved ones. Uh, but we notice that in some relationships, we have a deficit of friendships. Okay? We have a deficit of friendships. Pastor Eugene on last Sunday, and if you hadn't heard the message from last Sunday, please go on the podcast and listen to it. He talked about loneliness. And I'll define loneliness for you. Loneliness is a feeling of being alone regardless of the amount of social contact, which means that you can be in a church of this size with thousands of people coming in each and every Sunday and still be lonely. You can be a student in the classroom, and that classroom could be filled at a university, at a high school, at an elementary school, and you can still feel lonely. You can be on your job where you have all these people around you in your cubicles, they're talking to you, and you still have a feeling of being lonely. I think everybody in here can attest, in some time in your life, you may for a second felt lonely, right? The, the thing about loneliness is that it's a feeling, but it also leads to an action. Social isolation is having a lack of social connections. There are times when you're lonely, you tend to just go to an island and don't communicate or connect with other people, right? And that could be a problem. When you don't connect with other people, it can affect your well-being, such as loneliness and social isolation is linked to depression and suicide. It's also linked to decreased memory and learning cardiovascular disease and stroke, and last but not least, alcohol and drug use. Pastor, you mentioned, he asked a question on last week, why are we lonely? And experts have diagnosed four reasons for loneliness. Number one, 
He mentioned that there's a breakdown in families. That's divorce and dysfunction. What happens when divorce comes and separation comes? At times, children believe that they're at fault, right? And sometimes they what? They just kind of go into social isolation and don't speak to anyone. Even adults start to blame themselves at times. And they end up being in a world centered strictly around themselves. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And then number two, there's increased mobility, which means that we don't live in the same place for a long time. I'm a victim of that. I can remember when I coached college basketball years ago, over a 10-year span, I moved six times and moved from one part of the country to the next. I was living in Virginia, moved to Colorado, all these different places. And you know what my excuse was? I didn't want to connect with anybody because I said that I wouldn't be there for a long time, so there's no need to connect. And this is what's happening in our world. We're moving, 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 and we're not connecting or seeing other people. And then number three, there's heavy workloads. Has anybody said, I'm just so, so busy? Busy, busy. I don't have time to look at people. I don't have time to see people. I'm in and I'm out. We, a lot of times we come to church. We come in the church doors. We sit on the pews. When we, uh, when we come back and uh, Pastor Eugene blesses us, we run straight to our parking lots. But what I'm telling you is that it's time to slow down because people matter. Relationships matter. Being a part of somebody's life matters. And then last but not least, Pastor you talked about a rise of social media. And that's a, that seems to be a very ironic saying. Social media? Why would that produce loneliness? Because it's talking about a social atmosphere. So social seems to me that we're all getting together communicating, but I believe social media creates a false narrative and a false reality where you think that you're socializing, but you're only socializing with your phone alone. We know exactly the digits and the widgets and all these things that's going on with our phone, and we don't even pick our head up to see what's going on in our kids' lives. We know how to connect on social media, and we can look at other people's lives, and those lives, as Pastor you mentioned on last week, is really a facade because nobody lives like that. And we become so interested in other people's lives on this phone and on the computer that we don't see anybody on the side of us. I can tell you what, with my kids, I tell them every time we go to the dinner table and the lunch table, hey, put your phones down, we got to talk. I go in my son's room, my daughter's room, hey, 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 time to get off that phone. We got to communicate. Mom and dad love you. We want to see you. We want you to know a little more about us. Hey, mom and dad, can you just be interested in us too? And I'm going to challenge you as well with your children, social media, please. Hey, let's get some limits on that. Let's bring our kids back to where we're eating at the dinner table. We're talking to one another. We see one another. I tell you what, old school stuff ain't bad. There was a recent study. It was done on the dangers of social media. Sociologists, they follow users for six months, y'all. And those users, they were on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, okay? And then after six months, listen to this, they were limited to 10 minutes per platform. 10 minutes. 
Now, some of us would struggle with that. Because if you go on your phone now and you start looking at your average usage on the phone, what does it say? Could you even make it with 10 minutes on those platforms? I don't know, right? But after they did that, this is what they found out, the sociologists. The more you used your social media, the more you were on it, the more your feelings of well-being decreased. Remember I talked about well-being linked to depression, suicide, decreased memory and learning, cardiovascular disease, stroke, physical, emotional, psychological, alcohol and drug use, all those different things. The more you were on your devices on social media, the more your well-being, what, decreased. And hey, this is what they also found out. The less you were on your devices with social media, your well-being, what? Increased. <laughs> Y'all, we got to stop exchanging likes for love right. and emojis for emotions. Right. Hey, look at the conclusion of the sociologist. Are y'all ready for this big, big thought? Put your phone down and connect with people. I don't need a sociologist to tell me that. My mama told me that. <laughs> huh? How many times are you at the dinner table and you're telling your kids or somebody may have to tell you as adults to put it down because there are times I think adults are on it more than our children There are times that you're laying in bed with your husband and you're side by side. You know more about other people's lives than you know about your own life. I think we can put the phone down. But, hey, I'm not here to condemn or to put the people who are lonely down because of some things that we've done in our lives because we've all fallen short. I'm guilty of staying on my phone too long as well. I want to not only talk about the problem, and the crisis that's happening in our nation, but let's talk about a solution. Last week, we also talked about how do you love those who are lonely? Because there are some legitimate reasons why people today are sitting on the pews right on the side of you. They're feeling lonely like nobody loves them. So how do you love the lonely? Number one, we've got to touch them. Look at the example of Jesus when he healed the man with leprosy. You remember last week we talked about if you had leprosy in the Jewish culture, that you had to go and scream, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine if you have a skin disease that you're already feeling bad about and it's noticeable, but now I have to go into a room or go into a crowd and yell, unclean, unclean, where everybody disperses from me? Can you imagine living like that where nobody's ever touched you for years? Nobody wants to come around you? Think about the emotional anxiety that had to happen with this man that came to Jesus who asked Jesus, can you cleanse me? And Jesus says, yes, I can. But Jesus, did, did, he didn't just speak it. You know what he did? To a man with leprosy that everybody else would run away from, he came in and he touched that man and he healed him. There are some people in this room that nobody wants to come near. You might live on the other side of the tracks, and they may not want to come near you, but Jesus is saying, I see you, I love you, you're not too bad for me. I'm going to give you a gentle touch. Yeah. And what about listening? Jesus was preaching. 
to the crowds inside of a home. I'm sure that little home was just stacked with people ready to hear the good news. And then they tore a hole in the roof, laid a man down who could not walk. He was lame, laid him down in a bed, put, laid him down by Jesus. Jesus stopped uh, what preaching and teaching, and he paid attention to that man because that man meant something to him. There's sometimes we got to stop what we're doing. We're too busy. We got to just listen to people. We got to just touch people. And when I'm thinking about that, when I'm thinking about touch and listening, I also think about the what? The woman at the well. He listened. She's a Samaritan. Jews, typically, they don't deal with Samaritans. In fact, Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria where other Jews would go around it because they just thought, hey, they're a bunch of dogs. They had all kinds of names for Samaritans. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to go at the time when nobody else wants to go to the well. And she went at noon when nobody would be around because she knew what type of lifestyle she was living. And people in her community, they didn't want anything to do with her. They didn't want to listen to her. She could have been hurting all the days of her life, but nobody wanted to be around. But Jesus came and he listened. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I'm a bad listener. There are times when Courtney comes to me and says, babe, she's telling me something, and I'm like a fixer. You know, are, are there any people in here who are fixers? Somebody tells you something, you just think you got to just, oh, I got it. Hey, if you just do it my way, I'm telling you it's going to be okay. Stop it. I tried that. It doesn't work. I'm not God. And you know what? There are times that I'm speaking things to other people that God never told me to say. And a lot of times, God just wants me to listen with my two ears, and I don't have anything to say. All they need me to do in this healing when they're just what? Heard. There's value in what? In being heard, right? And then what about our time? Slow your roll, folks. Remember I told you about the crippled man, and the, the guy who, who was lame, and he, they laid him down. Jesus stopped preaching, and he just touched the guy because you know what? Jesus has time for you. A lot of us are, willing. listen, we're so busy, we see through people. If somebody's talking to us, our head is looking over here to see the next person we can talk to or the next place we can go, and we don't see the individual right in front of us. You are important to God. So if we are important to God, we're created in the image of God, shouldn't your fellow man and woman be important to us? Time. This is what I'm going to challenge everyone in this church. Before I even say it, say, I receive it, Pastor Myron. I know some of y'all didn't say that because you just waiting to see what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, thank you for your faith, everybody that said it. Because you don't know what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to challenge you to come to church 15 minutes or 10 minutes early. Come 10 minutes early so that you can talk to people. Come 10 minutes early so you can actually see people. So you can actually get an opportunity to what? To know who they are. It's something about looking at your brother, Ricky. When you see somebody, you see their soul, you see their expressions, you can see if they are hurting. But if you just come in, I'm just going to get my seat. I want to listen to the uh, worship. I want to hear the message. And then I want to get out in that parking lot because it, you know what? That parking lot gets full. I got to get out of here quick. So my next challenge is how about you stay 15 minutes later and start conversing and talking to people. Because I guarantee you, you know how you beat traffic? I'm, man, I'm 
I got the secret. I found out when I, when I first started coming to OSC Opelousas. I found out. You know how you beat traffic? Stay later. <laughs> if you stay later, traffic is gone, and you can drive. Look, I drive out of here like, woo, nobody. Church should be, and this, remember, Pastor, you said this is a well. This place should be a a place to congregate, which means, yes, we gather, but don't forget about fellowshipping. If it's just about gathering, you're going to miss the whole point of having relationships with people, and you're going to be just like those, your kids on the phone where they just, hey, they gather on social media, but they don't connect with anybody in their space. I know we don't want to do that, right? Not at Opelousas campus, right? Place to congregate and fellowship. Now, there's a theory, I want y'all to hear this. There's a theory that talks about six degrees of separation. And it says this, this is this theory. Six degrees of separation is the idea that all people are six or fewer social connections away from each other. Which means, I'll give you an example. When I first came to the Opelousas campus, going on two years, I didn't know too many people, right? But then we start, people start talking about a friend of a friend. So in other words... They just mentioned Ricky's name. Oh, yeah, I know Ricky. Oh, yeah, yeah, I went to school with Ricky back in the day. Connection. So what they're saying is within six connections, you're going to come together as one, and you're going to know somebody, which means that this is really a small world. That's what the theory is saying, but you don't know this if you don't make any connections. You don't know this if you don't go out and speak to somebody, right? One of the things that happened to me, I can remember this, having some connections with other people. I was, um, I remember having my coaching job, okay? I was at Campbell University in North Carolina. And then my coach's name, who I worked under, was Robbie Lang. There's another coach at Colorado State University. He was, he knew Robbie Lang. His name was Dale Layer. Robbie Lang knew that I was an aspiring young coach and I played at Virginia Tech, and Campbell was really a really good place for me, but I was a little antsy and young. I thought Campbell was too small for me. Ego. So Robbie kind of knew that. I mean, Robbie had been to the big schools and things like that, and, and Robbie knew my desire. So one day, the coach of Colorado State, Dale Lair, calls Robbie Lang and says, hey, I'm looking for a young coach. Because of the connections, he makes the connection with Dale Lair and me, I end up going to Colorado State for an interview because of a connection. Now, if I don't have the connection, if I don't know Robbie Lane, I won't know Dale Lair. Now, before going there, I was at Campbell University, like I just said. How I got to Campbell, I was working at Newport News Shipbuilding in the uh, raw materials section. I was buying material for aircraft carriers and submarine in Newport News, Virginia. I was tired of doing that because I wanted to get in coaching. And I knew an athletic director at Campbell University because I worked for him when I was at Nichols State University. I didn't know the head coach, but I knew Stan Williamson. So I called Stan Williamson. Stan, I'm trying to get back in coaching. Can you help me? Oh, yes, Myron, we have an opening over here. Let me see if I can contact the head coach, Billy Lee. Stan Williamson touches with Billy Lee, said, hey, I have a young man. I want you to come back and interview. I think he's good people. He can get this job. I interview with Bill, Billy Lee at Campbell University and get the job. But I don't get that job if God didn't ordain my relationship prior with Stan Williamson at Nichols State University. 
So what I'm telling you is that if you come back and you deny those relationships and you don't want to speak to somebody, you don't know about your divine purpose and you could be limiting yourself because you want to stay stuck in this mold and I don't want to come back and meet other people. I want to go out and be traffic. And it could be that person right on, the, right on the side of you. You could be one friend away from reaching your destiny. Now, many of you have made, if you've been at OSC for a long period of time, you've probably heard one of the pastors say this. And the saying goes like this. Show me your five closest friends, and I will show you your future. Start thinking about it. I know you got in your head, Susie, Dwayne, Tara. Show me your five closest friends, and I will show you your future. You know, most Americans can't name but two. Which means, as I said before, we're living in a friend deficit. Did you hear me? We're living in a friend deficit. But with that, I talked about destiny, right? What do you want to do? What do you want to become? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to achieve? I can tell you about my own life on how I got introduced to Pastor Jacob Aranza. I got introduced to Pastor Jacob Aranza because of Pastor Nick Carroll. I was in... Pastor Nick Carroll's small group. When I first moved back from Louisiana, from, Louis, from, from Virginia, I was coaching at Liberty University, came back to Louisiana, and I met Pastor Nick for the first time at the Lafayette campus. He invited me to a small group. I did not want to go because, remember, when I was in coaching, I always said I'm going to be here for a little while. I'm not going to connect with people because I won't, stay, I won't stay connected with them long. I gave myself an excuse out, right? Has anybody else said that? But Pastor Nick kept on saying, I'm like, okay, man, this guy here. So Courtney, Myron, we need to go to this small group. What? We talked about making a change whenever we move. We're not going to do the same thing. We're going to get in in the community, and we're going to connect with people. Okay, baby. All right. I was, I was mad. I'm not lying. I didn't want to go, but I ended up going to that small group. I connected with Pastor Nick and also other people. And remember... I'm up here as a pastor, right? I don't know if, for those of you who are here for the first time and may not have heard the story, I never wanted to be a pastor. My dad was a pastor. Great, dad, but I don't want to do that. But I also knew that I had a calling at about 12 years old that God has spoken to me that I would be preaching the gospel. I ran away from it. So I said, well, God, I'll do something a little bit better. I got a better idea. I'll just coach people, and that's the same thing. No, God said that's not it. So in that small group, Pastor Nick starts to talk, and then eventually he goes to Midtown Campus, and he starts talking to me. Myron, what's your calling? I, don't, I really don't want to tell him because I know if I tell somebody about my calling, then they're going to ask about it, and they're going to start talking to me about uh, preaching, and I don't want to talk about that. So I slipped up one time. I said, well, I know I've been called to preach. Ah, why did I tell Pastor Nick that? So, Pastor Nick, Mario, you've been called to preach. I think you have too. That's why I'm here to talk to you about. So he brings in Pastor Jacob. I'm like, man, I don't want to meet Pastor Jacob. I know, I know. I heard this guy was persistent. I didn't really know him at the time. Pastor Jacob, man of God, man of God, you call, you call, you know, Pastor Jacob is just going. And I'm like, who is he? 
So, Pastor, I refuse it. I'm like, I'm not getting strong armed into this. I don't want to preach. But Pastor Jacob, I got businesses right now. My businesses are doing well. They need my time. Man of God, he starts talking about some things. You, you got to get people that can, that can help you in that. You don't need to be doing all of that. It's, you know, he starts giving me stories about Jethro and Moses and all that, how, you know, Moses couldn't do everything by himself. You got to get other people. And he was actually right. I did do that and eventually got some great leaders in my company and it was, everything was all good. But I met Pastor Jacob. Pastor Jacob talks to me about my calling. Now I'm on stage because I met two people that knew each other and connected. And then Pastor Jacob and Pastor Nick, they connect me to Pastor Eugene. Because I had heard of Pastor Gene. I had seen Pastor Gene. But I didn't really know Pastor Gene. When I come to this campus, Pastor Nick connects me to Pastor Eugene. And all of a sudden now, I'm under the leadership of Pastor Eugene. We have a great friendship. We're leading the campuses, this campus together with our staff and with all of you included. Just because of what? A divine relationship. A divine relationship. And hey, the same thing happens to Paul. Paul gets knocked off his feet going to what? On the road to Damascus because he's trying to persecute the Christians. He's trying to kill people who believe in Jesus Christ. But then once he gets an encounter with Jesus, now he's been commissioned to what? To preach to the Gentiles. But who's going to invite Paul to preach when he's been killing folk? Would you want a killer of killing Christians to come here at our Savior's church and just come on stage and you don't know anything about them? I might have security team lined up all the way across. So Paul wants to preach, but there's an obstacle. But who? Divine relationship. Divine connection comes. Follow me on Acts 9, 26 through 28. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers but they were all afraid of him. Oh, I wonder why. You've been killing Christians. Read with me. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. He has a destiny. He has a calling. But it's very difficult for him to get to that calling because of his past. So when things get so bad, it doesn't look like Things will come to fruition. You need a supernatural power to break some things open for you. Got me? So look at what happens. Verse 27. Then, say it with me, Barnabas, divine connection to Paul. Paul and Barnabas are friends. They're doing work in the ministry. Barnabas brought him, brought Paul to the apostles and told them how Saul had been, had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. Now, hold up one second. I did not explain. Saul is just the Hebrew name. Paul is the Roman name. Same people. Saul and Paul's name did not get changed. Saul, when you see Saul in the Bible, right here in this case in the New Testament, that's still, he's talking about Paul. But Barnabas brought Paul or Saul to the, to the apostles. And the apostles are Jesus' disciples, right? He would have never been able to connect with the disciples if he didn't have a divine, what, relationship or connection with Barnabas. 
Paul's purpose could have been delayed. There could have been a delay in what Paul was doing because Paul, if he hadn't connected with other believers in Christ and just stayed to himself and stayed on the background and didn't say a word, he wouldn't have met the apostles. Are y'all following me? Y'all get this, okay? Keep on going. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of of Jesus in Damascus. So what? Barnabas is really talking about what? Paul, in terms of his past, and letting them know that his past is his past. He has a new reputation. He is a new man in Jesus Christ. Barnabas had to go before Paul to set the stage so Paul can meet them so he can walk in his divine purpose. Keep going. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with the apostles And went all around. He stayed with whom? The apostles who were worried about him at first. The divine connection, God got him there. Now he's with the apostles. And listen, he went all around Jerusalem with them. What was he doing? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. What did Paul want to do? He wanted to preach the gospel, but it would have been delayed if he hadn't have met Barnabas. Barnabas connects him with the apostles. Now the apostles take him out. Now he has credibility in his reputation because God made the divine connection. There are three types of friends every person needs. Number one, a friend who makes you better. A friend who makes you better. I want to look at the life in terms of friendships. I want to look at David's life. David wasn't a perfect man, right? He had one epic failure. We know David and Bathsheba, he had no self-control. Okay? But he had many successes. David was also called a man after God's own heart. And the friends, the ordained friends, the divine friends that God brought in David's life helped him become the right person to be the king, eventual king of Israel. Now let me set this stage up before we go into 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13. God had rejected, now this is another Saul, this is not the Saul of the New Testament, this is a Saul of the Old Testament, Saul the king, the first appointed king of Israel. The people wanted Saul. God didn't want it that way. God wanted judges, but the people wanted Saul. They wanted to be like the other nations. So God gave them the desires of their heart. They gave him a man. He had a great appearance. But the problem with Saul is that Saul started to break down. He started to get jealous of David. So God had to anoint another king, and he says, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. Now, you wanted this type of king. I'm telling you this is the king that I'm going to anoint, and that anointment was on David. So now we're coming up into the anointment of David and the, uh, and the prophet Samuel who was put in David's life is about to bring some things together because the prophet was a friend who made David's life better. Everybody else wanted a king who had a certain look. And a lot of times we're going after people because of their positions and their appearances because on the outside it looks very, very good. But I'm telling you, God weighs a man based on his heart. Our friendships, you got to look at your friend's hearts. Where are they? If they have a good heart, they will be a friend who makes you better because a friend can make you worse. Our friend can make you what? Better. So Samuel, that's coming on the scene, he's speaking to David's dad, Jesse, and he's saying he's inviting them to the sacrificial feast. 
and he's saying, can you bring me your sons? They don't know that he's going to anoint a king. They just think something else. They're in the dark. But they're bringing him everybody else but little David. Let's look at this. Look at, look at this. 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 13. So Jesse, that's David's dad, sent for him. And he sent for him after the seven other brothers came through. Because to the family, David was a nobody. David was out serving in the pasture. He was a shepherd. And those who served and were shepherding over the flock, usually they were called servants. That meant that David's family was not rich because rich people had servants to go and serve what? In the pastures. But for the family, since David was the lowest of the low, that's how they looked at him. He was now what? He's a servant. A servant about to be anointed as a king. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome, with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Not one person, y'all, in the family of David thought he would be king. They didn't even invite him to the party. All the other brothers were invited to get anointed, but they said, David, you're not good enough. How many of us in here have been told by our families or been told by our some so-called friends that you weren't good enough, you couldn't make it? But when God came in, came in, in your life, he looked at you and he saw that you had a, pre, a divine purpose. The Bible says you have a predestined purpose before you were even born and formed in your mother's womb. God already knew what you were supposed to do. And God said, they may think of you that way. They may look at your circumstances. They may look at your environment. But I'm going to look at your heart and I know that I'm going to take you somewhere far. And you know what? A lot of times you have to have a friend that reminds you of that. You have to have a friend that says, hey, 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 I know what they're saying about you, but this is what God says about you. You see how it's important to have a divine relationship? Because when it's divine, God's going to give your friend something to say. He's going to tell you something specific to build you up. Friends. Back to your five closest friends. Do they make you better? Dwayne Clark has been my friend since Head Start. I'm 46. I met him when I was five. I'm no, sorry, four. St. Paul Baptist Church in Mamou, Louisiana, big city of Mamou. Dwayne Clark and I have been friends ever since. He now lives in Pensacola, Florida. Dwayne Clark is a true friend. He makes me better. Dwayne Clark wants everything but good in my life. And I'm talking about a consistent friend for over 40 years. He speaks life over my family. He calls my son. He texts my son. He breathes life on my son. He even tells my son some, all these stories like I was just the greatest person ever in Mamou. And he moved with me to Lake Charles when we moved to Lake Charles. We went to the same high school, even in Lake Charles at Barb High. And when he's speaking, I, 
Mason probably like, man, come on, Mr. D. You're saying too much now. But Dwayne Clark's makes me better. When I went to Virginia Tech and played basketball, we were the only freshmen, me and Sean Brown. Sean Brown, so everybody else was living in these nice apartments off-campus basketball players, but since we were young, we had to stay in the dorm. So me and Sean, we, bond, we bonded. Sean Brown was originally from St. Vincent, the islands in the Caribbean, and then his family moved when he was young to Montreal, Canada. And Sean Brown was a really, really good friend. He's still my friend. Sometimes I'm in bed because, you know, I'm from Louisiana. When it got cold, I didn't want to go to class because in Louisiana, when it snows, you stay in bed. <laughs> That's what I thought. But Sean Brown reminded me of something different. Myron, he used to call me G because my last name's Guillory. G, G, let's got to get to class, baby. We didn't come here just to play ball. We got to get this degree. G, get up, get up, G. Like, Sean, man, will you leave me alone? I'm not going to class today. It's too cold out there. And when you walk across the drill field, it's even colder because that wind from Southwest Virginia is blowing. I'm not used to that. Come on, G, get to class. Ah, all right, let's go. Because Sean Brown cared about me. He wouldn't let his friends stay down. Dwayne Clark, Sean Brown, which leads me to Proverbs 27, 17, which says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. And I'm telling you these stories because we're sharpening each other, me and my friends. Sean Brown and I, we've been friends for 25 years back in college. Dwayne Clark has been friends for over 40 years. We're still sharpening each other. And you know what? Sometimes I've been dull and they've been dull. And you know what happens to a dull friend? You've got to sharpen them up. If they get too dull and don't have Jesus Christ in them, maybe you've got to leave that friend. We sharpen each other. Dwayne Clark, he, had, he went through a divorce years ago. Down, crying. Hey, you got this, baby. You're, hey, man, it's my fault. No, no, hey, listen. I understood we all make some mistakes, D. We make some mistakes. But listen, God still loves you, man. You still have an opportunity. You can keep going. Hey, I know you. I know we, everybody messes up in some situations, but you're going to be okay. You're not going to stay down, D. When I was crying, when I was down, Dwayne Clark coming back, what? He's lifting me up, too. Which leads me to my second point, a friend. We need a friend who helps us find strength. You got to have a friend who helps you find strength. Listen, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't go through some stuff. Yeah. Going back to David, because we're talking about David's friends. David was anointed the next king. He was a giant killer. He was a war hero. People were singing, Saul has slain a thousand. David has slain 10,000. He was a hero in Israel. And because people were boosting him up, King Saul got overwhelmed with jealousy and hatred and was trying to kill him. Everywhere David went, Saul and his men were trying to kill him. David was running for his life. So even those closest to God have their moments, their temptations, their discouragement, and there's also depression. Can we agree with that, church? But look at 1 Samuel 23, 15 through 16. King Saul is coming after David. So one day, 
near Haresh, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and what? And kill him. Verse 16, Jonathan. Let's stop right there. So who's Jonathan? Jonathan is King Saul's son. Jonathan and David, had, they've had friendships for years. When David was introduced to King Saul, playing music for him, he met his son, and they had a strong bond. Now, look at the irony here. Jonathan's dad is chasing David, and now Jonathan comes on the scene as a true friend. Verse 16 says, Jonathan went to find David and, read it with me, encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Now, my dad is trying to kill you, but I know it's evil. I'm going to go against my earthly dad. I'm going to listen to my heavenly father. I have a divine appointment. I have a divine connection that God has orchestrated and put us together. And maybe that connection, God put that connection together so that when David was at his worst and sunken in his, I'm talking about trying to get killed and at his lowest point of life, fear, anxiety, worry, and all of that, maybe he needed that one friend to come out and find him so that he can be strengthened in the Lord. Maybe you need that one friend when you're down, when you don't even want to take a step out of bed, maybe you need that one friend that can give you a call and say, you got this. And I'm going to walk with you in life. And so you can start taking that step because that one friend that God designed for, he, it was divine connection, God ordained it, that friend is going to take you out of the miry clay and is going to lift you up, put you, and help you to get on that solid foundation so you can continue walking in strength in the Lord. One friend. One friend. I can tell you we all need someone who encourages us, prays for us, and gives us strength. And you know who does that really, really well? You guys know them. Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi. When I was trying to sell uh, one of my businesses, and I, I used to own Church's Chicken out in Lafayette. A location, two locations there, on one in Sulphur. And because I just felt it was, I've been doing it for nine years. Doing, businesses were doing well. But it was just time for something else. I just felt God speaking to my heart, my brother's heart. It was time for us to do something else. And I knew for me it was really about being a pastor, touching with our team, touching with our people, Opelousas. God had put that in my heart. But I couldn't sell the businesses for some reason. I had, I had one franchisee came in, had a great deal on the table. And that great deal fell through because Church's Chickens, they wouldn't approve it. The carpet wouldn't approve it. They wanted me and my brother to remain as franchisees because, you know, obviously if, if restaurants are doing well, they don't want to mess some stuff up. Carpet is all about profits, right? So it fell through. I, I, was, I was angry. I had to I call Pastor you. I said, Pastor, you were right there. I was one month away from uh, signing the papers and we had a sale. Man of God, just keep on going. Ah. <sighs> All right, another time came, another franchisee came up, and that fell through. 
Pastor you, man, the God is going to be okay. I can see it in your future. You're going to sell that business. I don't see what you see in Pastor Eugene. But he kept encouraging me. And every time on the phone, he says, let's pray. He never said, I'm going to pray for you. He says, let's pray. And he prayed for me every single time before he hung up the phone. And you can't imagine just what that prayer and just him listening to me, venting impatiently, but I had to wait on God because it had to be the right moment. Pastor Eugene was telling me that, but I was like, man, God, I'm, hey, it's, it's time to make this move. I'm tired of dealing with some of this stuff. But I had, I had a friend who kept what? Giving me strength. When I come down, I have a conversation with him, I'm ready to go back to work. Now, Courtney, my wife, her mom's in the hospital right now. I flew down from Virginia, and right now Jackie got sick, and she's in the hospital. Currently, that's where my wife is right now. Miss Heidi calls. Courtney's going to be okay. God's got her. Because you're in a situation where sometimes you get so weak, even when you're a Christian, you get weak, you get tired, you get weary, and you need a friend to come in and tell you that, hey, there's strength in the Lord. So that way she can get up and she can go and take care of mom, and we can believe in Jesus Christ that mom will be healed. Because what? Because of a friend. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Back to your five friends. Do you have one of these? Do you have a friend who makes you better? Do you have a friend who helps you find strength? You may be one degree away from your destiny, and it could be that friend. Number three, you need a friend who will tell you the truth. Ooh. David had the prophet Nathan. Because remember I told you that David had one big mess up? David didn't have self-control. He looked at a beautiful woman who was bathing, naked, couldn't control himself. This brother messed up bad. Ended up having relationships, relations with her, impregnated her. And then he tried to cover it up by having her husband go back and sleep with her so that they, the husband would think that's his child if he found out. David did some stuff. He would try to get the husband drunk so the husband could go back and mess all his faculties up. But you know what? The husband was a what? He was a righteous man. He wouldn't do it. Uriah. So David said, hey, I'm going to kill this brother. He told his commander, hey, go ahead and put him on the front lines. He needs to die because if he doesn't die, he's going to expose me. And you know, we don't want to be exposed. So he has Uriah killed. So now David is the adulterer and he is the what? The murderer. And Nathan, the prophet, divine appointment, friend of David. Nathan comes to him and tells David a story. He doesn't go in and just starts condemning David. He says, I'm going to tell you a story, David. I'm going to tell you a story about a rich man who had many flocks and herds. And a poor man who only had this little, little lamb. And then there was a traveler that came through, came to talk to the rich man. And you know what the rich man did? The traveler wanted some food. But, they, but the rich man said, hey, well, 
I got all these flocks, I got all these herds, but I don't want to use mine. I'm greedy. I'm going to go take from the poor man his one little lamb. So the rich man takes from the poor man, steals the one little lamb, the only, thing, only one that he had, and gives that to the traveler, and they have a feast and they eat. So David, it blows his mind. He thinks this story is a true story. It's just, it was a story, but he thinks this story, which it is true, but David thought it was about somebody else. So David says, hey, this man needs to die for his sins. And he needs to also replace that one little lamb with four. Because David knew the word of God. In Exodus, it talks about if you steal a lamb, then you have to replace it with four. David knew the word, but sometimes you can even know the word of God, but you don't apply it to your life. Stole. And David is upset. David is ready to do something. I'm king. Nobody's going to do that in my kingdom. Nathan's telling him the story. But look at what, after the story's told and after David's reaction, look at Nathan's reply because he's a friend. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Truth ball. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Yet, you do this to little old Uriah who's fighting for the Israelites. I anointed you. I've given you a big responsibility, but you took the wife, the one wife that he had. And you have several wives as the king of Israel. But I'm going to take from you because I'm a little greedy and I don't have any control. But this is the great thing about having a friend because David probably could have just kept on going. It's all good. I'm the king. But the prophet was put in his life and the relationship was divine. So the prophet can tell David the truth about himself because the truth led David to repentance. Did you hear me? A divine connection. Nathan, because Nathan had a responsibility as a prophet to speak the word of the Lord. A divine connection connected with the king of Israel, David. They had to join up. David has to do his part. And also, Nathan has to do his, which is to tell the story. David has to do his, is to receive the story. Do you receive the truth when your friend tells you? The truth. I can remember when I was a young guy. I was a freshman in high school. I went to Mamo High for one a semester. And I think in March I moved. I ended up moving after basketball season because my parents had moved. And I went to Lake Charles after that. But I, I, my parents allowed me to just finish the basketball season. I was a freshman. And I was a cocky little dude. I was selfish, too. Because my whole life, all I dreamt about walking through the streets of Mamu, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to play some college ball. Don't talk to me about anything else. I'm going to play some college ball. 
You could, you'd see me down the street just dribbling the basketball, just the whole time shooting, shooting, shooting. I would dream it. I would see it. I'm going to play some college ball. And so nobody was going to stop me from that dream, not even my own team or my coaches. I was selfish. So I didn't like to pass, y'all. I liked to shoot that rock. After the game, I wanted my wrist to hurt from shooting that thing. And one time, we played against Northside High School out in Lafayette. So, you know, my move, single A at the time versus Northside, I think they were 5A at the time. But I'm the man, I'm about to give it to these boys. That's what I'm thinking. You know, I, hey, I scored 49 points in the game, so I'm like, yeah, I'm, these boys can't handle me. I'm a freshman, I don't care. I'm, I'm playing like I'm a senior. That's what I think. But I don't really understand the game. I don't really understand life. So my brother comes to that game. My brother played college ball. He played, started off at Louisiana Monroe, Northeast University, NLU at the time. And then he transferred to Southern. So he played some balls. He came down to see me play out in Lafayette. So I'm playing. I, you know, I'm balling. I'm thinking I'm doing good and all this and that. And then after the game, Mac, that's my older brother, he's seven years older than me, he comes to me and says, hey, come see, come see little bro. Let's talk. I say, what's up, man? What you think about the game? Now, we got waxed by 30. But I wasn't even worried about that because I was like, what about my points? He said, hey, man, come, come here. If you continue playing like that, you're not going to play college ball. What? You saying that to me? The man? Hey, Myron, selfish. You got teammates open. You're not passing the ball. Looking bad. Looking bad, brother. You're not going to make it, man. I cried like a baby. I cried like a baby. And I was mad at Mac for a while. I don't care if you're my brother. You can't tell me I'm not playing. And that I didn't have a good game. I had 20. I don't care. But he knew I wasn't playing the game right. He knew I was too cocky. He knew I was too selfish. And he was just trying to show me, telling me the truth that I didn't see. I had blind spots. I didn't want to listen to the coach. I wasn't coachable. And he came back and he spoke to me in that moment. He was real. He spoke the truth. Did it hurt me? Yeah, it hurt me. Did I cry? Yeah, I cried. Was I mad at Mac? Yes, I was mad at Mac. But look at Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Look what it says. It says, bring it up on the screen, Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. It says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Look at what the evangelist Morgan Campbell says. He says, we do not really like rebuke. We are inherently inclined to resent it. The fact that we really deserve it or need it does not make it pleasant. Moreover, our dislike of rebuke leads us to think, listen to this, that those who love us serve us well when they are silent in the presence of our shortcomings. I just wanted Mac to agree with me. I didn't want the truth. But if Mac would have agreed with me, I probably, probably would have continued playing the game like I was playing. And God had to have an ordained assignment for us to meet and speak so that I can reach a point that God wanted me to go. But I probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't have a friend in my brother tell me the truth. How many of us today has a friend that told you the truth but you reject it 
or you have a friend that won't tell you the truth. They'll just love you, hit in love, and not say anything to you so that you can continue to be happy. Do you have a friend like that that's going to be honest with you? That's going to tell you the truth even though it hurts, but they love you so much that they're willing to speak to your blind spots. They're willing to speak to your shortcomings. Do you have a friend like that? Because if you do have a friend like that, you could be one friendship away from a better marriage, leaving depression, being a strong leader, living in freedom, overcoming addiction, getting in shape, meeting Christ. Connection. Now, I'm walking on stage, I might have a little limp today, and it's not because I'm cool, it's because I hurt my back. I was at the gym just trying to be, you know, Superman. You know, these former athletes, they start thinking that they, they you know, I start, my brain started getting messed up. My ego got bigger than my ability, so I hurt my back by working out. And uh, the other day, my wife and I, we were in bed. She's getting out of bed. She said, hey, Myron, I, um, if you need some help, I I'm here. I'm going to be in the office doing some work, but just call me. I'll come in and help you because she knew I was in some pain. And while I was in pain, I was like, well, I got, I got some choices. These are my choices. I can either sit here in bed and do nothing. I can try to do it by myself and hurt even more. Or I can ask my wife for help, Courtney, for help, and my pain won't be as bad. She's going to help me. Can you guess what I chose? I chose to do it myself. And the pain was excruciating pain because I was stubborn and I didn't want to admit my shortcoming and didn't want to ask for help. And God had put a woman in my life that was there to help me. She's my helpmate. But what about you? What about when you're in pain? Do you just, some people, some of you might say, hey, I'm just not going to do anything. I, I, I give in. I give in to my pain, the pain of life. And then some of you say, hey, I, just, I don't need any help. I've been taught to be strong. I got a man up or I got a woman up. I'm going to just do it myself. That's what I've been taught. That's strength. And you end up trying to do things and you have pain all over you. And you end up hurting yourself even more because you won't ask for help. And you won't rely on the friends that God has ordained for you, the connections that God has for you, but too stubborn to do that because you think you're strong by doing it on your own. I'm telling you, if that's you, the change needs to happen today because you've been giving a false teaching in your community, in your families, in your homes. God has designed us so that we have relationships with him first and with our brothers and sisters after that. And the closer you are to him, the better your connection will be. The more you know him, the more you understand that you need people. So with that, I'm going to ask you to have some courage today. First of all, there are some individuals in here. You are the Samuel. You are a Jonathan. You are a Nathan. 
Small group leaders are needed. And you could be that individual that has a divine connection with other people in our church so that you can help them along their walk. If you've been a small group or a freedom group, freedom group before, as Makisha said, you can go out in, the, out in our lobby area, in our foyer area, and sign up and be that. Because you may be coming and saying, oh, I've done it before. I've done it 10 years ago. I don't need to do it now. No, no. There, there may be some connections that God wants to put you with some people and some faces that God wants to have you in so that you can have an impact on their lives. But if you sit there, you're not doing your part. And you know what? You take away from what their part can be. You take away from their destiny because you don't want to participate. Small group leaders. The next group are the people who just sit there in pain and shame and guilt. And you need a friend. You've been coming to our church for a long time, sitting in the pews, and you don't know anyone right now. We, want, we are speaking to you so that you have connections with other people so you don't have that social isolation and you don't have to walk in this world alone. That's not how God designed it. Next week, we will have small group sign-ups. You have an opportunity to join a small group and to connect with people like-minded believers in this church, and it could be a divine connection that you make with somebody to where your life will never be the same. God has to help for you, but you got to say, hey, I'm open, God. I receive your help. Not like me sitting in bed struggling in pain, but from a spiritual sense, we do that a lot. I'm going to open myself up. I'm going to receive God's help because God is going to be my, my way maker. Peace comes when you connect with God's people. Do you agree with that? So we're talking to small group leaders. We're talking to those of you who are going to join small groups, right? And then the last group I'm going to talk to, because our best relationship that we can ever have in our life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. First, then, first connection with Jesus, then we have connections with our brothers and sisters. You, you can't make it without Jesus. I tried it, I believe me, I tried it over and over again, and I failed. There's somebody today that the Holy Spirit's been knocking on your door. You know that. You, you know that God's been knocking on your door. Hey, let me in. I want to be your friend. I want to be your friend. Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants a closer relationship with you. And I'm going to ask today, the question is, have you been born again? I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth where you come to know Jesus as your personal Savior. Not being christened, not being baptized, but have you been born again? Jesus says, no man can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No man can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So it's as simple as ABC. First of all, admit you're a sinner. That's all you have to do, admit you're a sinner. Believe that Christ became the bearer of your sin, your guilt, and your shame. And then C, confess him as your Lord and Savior. That's all you have to do. And so with all eyes closed, head bowed, nobody's looking but me. If you want to become born again, just raise your hand. Nobody's watching. Thank you, thank you. I see all the hands going up. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. One more time. Do you, 
All of you who want to be born again, don't. Nobody's watching but me. God's been speaking to you. Before the words even came out of my mouth, God's been speaking to you. One more time, raise your hands if you want to be born again. Thank you so much. So congregation, can we just say this prayer with those of you who raised your hands? The prayer doesn't save you, but it's just a confession that you're making to God. Can you repeat after me? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. And I declare that God is my Father, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is my helper, and heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God some praise for all of you who raised your hands.